Hey, welcome back to another evening of us trying and striving to figure out how to be the church that Jesus desires us to be. Hope you had a good weekend. Hope you enjoyed some time off or away with family and loved ones, maybe to uh, be refreshed and encouraged. So important for us. We really do need that. Let me get set up here. Get ourselves ready to go. We've got Nadine and Roxy. I see two on here. Good to see you guys. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Good evening. Hey, Mom and Roxy. Good to see y'all. You have a good weekend, some good time off, time to relax and rejuvenate, hopefully be refreshed a little bit. Ricardo, good to see you. I see Summerlin. I sound like I hear noise coming from this. Mom, good to see you. Hellos, everyone's. Hellos, everyone's. Oh, man, it is warm up here today. Good evening. What I want to do tonight is actually, uh, so what I, on Sunday, yesterday, uh, I had the opportunity to speak for Long Beach or Refuge Long Beach. And in place of our time that we normally meet Sundays at six, I just spoke there and invited people to uh, come and join us. Uh, but I know some people weren't able to make that. And so what I want to do is kind of walk through what I covered uh, yesterday because it was still in line with what we've been talking about. So I left off on Thursday of last week. That's our, our end week. We're doing uh, Sunday through Thursday. So we ended on Thursday and I wanted to pick back up on Sunday, but I used that time. I know some of you didn't get a chance to catch it. So we'll make sure we cover it tonight. Uh, what I talked about there as we are continuing in our journey um, to make sure that we're all on the same page, especially as we begin to talk about uh, racial reconciliation and what it looks like for us to actually come together and be one, the church that Jesus died for us to be. Here we got. Hey, Paris, how are you? Good to see you. Lefty West have been in the building. Roxy, I did enjoy my time uh, with my wife and daughter. Definitely wishing and wanting to be able to hang with more family and be, be with our loved ones. Uh, but we must be patient and wait till uh, the time is right. Wait till the time is, is right. 
Um, forgot what I was saying. <laughs> anyway, wanted to catch us up and fill us in, make sure you guys uh, didn't miss what we talked about. I think it's important, especially as we begin to discuss uh, just a reminder, everything that I'm talking about is catered to or for the church. I'm talking to the body of Christ. And I think that so much of what we're witnessing in the world today is uh, results of sin. And the church is responsible to speak to and address sin and also has good news for sinful people or sinful situations. So I think it's the church's role to lead in this regard. And uh, I'm just trying to do my part. I'm glad I get to hang out with you guys and walk through uh, some history as well as God's word. And so that's what we'll be doing tonight. Got a lot of scriptures to cover tonight. A whole bunch of Bible to walk through. We did a lot of history, a lot of talking. Now we move towards what thus says the Lord, which matters most. And then figure out the role that we play and how we align with what God is up to uh, in the world. I just think that uh, we need this. We need this uh, desperately uh, to understand for our for our churches to be the salt and light God's called us to be. So let's pray and then we'll jump in. Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for another opportunity to gather tonight as a family and just to open your word and to hear from you. I pray that you would speak in and through me and that you would allow us to be shaped and molded by what your word says and that you would draw us to yourself and that we would see ourselves in light of what this great Bible tells us. So prepare us, Lord, to hear and receive, but to maybe repent where we need to repent of some things or lay down some uh, ideologies we might have had or just thoughts and belief that do not align with what your word says. Help us to let this be our source and center of truth. And I pray that you be glorified in our time tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, family. So, uh, like I said, I want to do a recap from Sunday's message, but it's new for those of you who are on tonight. And what I'm basically doing is sharing with you what I feel like God shared with me. So, I'm going to share with you a lens, like my glasses here, a biblical lens through which, which I see the church and what God is up to and ultimately trying to do in the world. So it's a whole, I mean, I could teach this for weeks, probably months actually, uh, and I'm going to cover it all in one night because as we continue to move forward, I will touch on all, most of these issues in greater detail along the way, but I'm wanting you to see from my perspective. So we ended last Thursday saying, hey, well, actually for a couple of, like two weeks now, we talked about, we can't reconcile. We can't come back together, which is what it means to reconcile, because we've actually never really been together. We're talking about blacks and whites. We've never had the kumbaya moment, so we cannot reconcile because we've never actually walked in unity in that way. Uh, also wanting to point out that we can't heal uh, 
if we don't understand the depth of our womb. So I spent a lot of time talking about uh, the original sin in America. Now, as Christians, we really understand this idea of original sin. We understand that Adam and Eve sinned. And so people today, you know, thousands of years later, uh, are sinning or doing wicked, bad, evil things because of Adam and Eve's original sin. And what I'm trying to do or what I tried to do was to point to America's original sin, which I said was racism. Uh, are this idea of white supremacy, which is basically the same thing. And that original sin is why we're seeing so much of what we're seeing here today. And the church has a responsibility to address sin, but because the church was in bed and allowed or even supported that sinful philosophy, now it's at conflict to determine what or how do I respond as a church or as a Christian. So I want to make sure that we are talking about the truth and addressing all these real issues. And that's what I tried to do. I could have started, you know, 2000 years ago with church. I'm not going to do that. I just wanted to start with the development and building of America and our nation. So if you missed that, you can go back and watch all those videos. Well, last week on Thursday, I said, here's some of the steps I think white people need to take. Uh, and here's some of the steps I think that black people need to take if we're going to come together and be the church that Jesus desires us to be. Well, today I want to talk about what that church looks like. But before we do that, we have to understand that this idea of when we talk about white supremacy, uh, it's not to just target white people. There's all types of groups who have had an idea of being superior to others. Now, being connected to the Bible the Jews felt superior to Gentiles, which means all other people. The Jews thought they were superior to everyone else. Uh, they had interacted with God. They had the people like Moses, you know, and the prophets who led them. They had scripture. They had everything to make them feel like they were superior or more special than anyone else. And so what we see in the Bible is that in Acts chapter 1, Verse six, you can go there if you want. When Jesus dies and resurrects and he appears to the disciples, they're asking him, are you now going to set up our kingdom is what they ask him. Are you now going to make us the rulers and the leader, take us from under our oppressors so that we might be in control and we can have power and ball out now? Is now the time that you've come to make sure our life is great? And Jesus responds with them and says, no, that's not actually, you know, why I've come. I've got a different mission or a different agenda for my kingdom. It's not about a Jewish kingdom, a white kingdom, a black kingdom. It's about my kingdom, which is not of this world. And he makes that really clear. But I want you to see that even they thought that Jesus was coming to set up a form of government, which is what a kingdom is, that would allow them to prosper. And they were in error uh, when they thought that about the Messiah. But that's not the only place we see that, uh, that there's this idea of racial issues coming. He's thinking, are you are you the savior of the world? But you came to basically, uh, you know, be a blessing just to us Jews. And that was an error. And so I also want you to see in, uh, do I want to go there? Well, I have talked about this some. Um, well, basically in Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 7, 
this is right after the church had been birthed. So the start of the church happens and there's Greek speaking, you know, Jews, Hebrew speaking Jews, culturally they're divided and culture eats everything else for lunch. That's why Martin Luther King said almost 60 years ago that Sunday morning at 11 o'clock is the most divided hour in America. And it's still true 60 years later because culture mixed with ideas of, you know, uh, different forms of supremacy, racism, whatever, but ultimately keeps us segregated and separated. And it happened in Acts chapter six, when the church first started, uh, they were running a food program basically, and they were distributing food to those in need. And the people who spoke Hebrew were given food first or given better portions. You know, they were benefiting more than those that spoke Greek. And they brought the complaints to the apostles and said, us Greeks are being discriminated against in God's church. They're not treating us fair because culturally and our language and all that, they're, they're, paying, they're playing favorites, basically. And so what the apostles do is they pick seven. This is where we get the idea of a deacon from. They pick seven men who are leaders filled with the Holy Spirit, and they appoint these men to ultimately... Uh, run the program, run that food program, but basically take care of all the affairs in the church so that the apostles could focus on preaching, teaching, and praying. Well, those deacons that are set up, that they're there because of the issue of discrimination that took place right there within the church, right in the beginning. So I point that out because I want us to see and know and understand that these issues have been there from the beginning. Then Peter, who's considered... Uh, the leader of the church, you know, there are a lot of apostles who are kind of running the show, but he is one of the the main guys. I don't, you know, he's, he, he's definitely a leader. He's the rock that Jesus says he would build his church on. But in Acts chapter 10, God basically tells Peter to eat some food that, you know, the Gentiles would eat. Jewish people wouldn't involve themselves in that. And Peter tells God, no. Because culturally, it doesn't align with who he is. Now think about that for a minute. Peter's telling God no because it doesn't align culturally. That's a message for us today that we cannot put culture over what God is telling us to do. But Peter struggled with that because he's a person just like you and I in need of grace and God's spirit. But God was working on him and then he sent him to a man named Cornelius' house. Cornelius is a Gentile. Now, remember, Jews and Gentiles don't get along. It's just like like black and white, you know, 200 years ago. It's just you don't interact at all. And so what we have is God telling Peter to go to this Gentile's house and share the gospel with him. And the Holy Spirit falls down and he gets saved. Cornelius, you know, comes to Christ's family. And Peter is aware that God loves and is trying to save the Gentiles in the same way he did the Jews. And it blows his mind and he can't believe it. And you think with the food illustration and now the Gentiles getting saved that he's figured it out. But in Acts chapter 15, you can write these scriptures down. What we see is that the Jewish, the leaders have to have a council to, to discuss what must Gentiles do to be saved. And you'd ask the question, well, why wouldn't they have to do exactly what the, the Jews had to do? But because of these racial or ethnic issues, they were wrestling with 
Can they be saved just the way that we are? And the church was struggling in Acts 15 with, will God accept them just the way he's accepted us? Or is there something else that they must do? Do they have to become Jewish in order to be saved? Do they have to be circumcised? Do, do they, what must they do to be saved? Because they're ethnically, they're not like us. And so I wanted us to see that even in the beginning, the church was wrestling with these issues of culture and prejudice and preference and discrimination and you name it. It's all right there. Now, uh, in Galatians chapter two, if you thought that Peter would have figured it out, having seen God move, you know, in Acts two, uh, and then again with the discrimination in Acts six or in Acts 10 or in Acts 15, by the time we get to Galatians two, Paul has to call him out because Peter is eating with some Gentiles. He's hanging out. He's now free to eat with these Gentiles. He's eating with them. But when some of his Jewish friends show up, he, he disconnects, he disassociates. He doesn't want to seem as if he's embracing their, their way of life, their values, their style. And Paul has to call him out and confront him on that because what he was doing did not align with the truths of the gospel. Now, all of these, I could, I'll go back to these scriptures later. They speak to our time right now so clearly. There's so much we can glean from. There's so much we can uh, learn from, from these scriptures. Even in Philippians 3, what we see is Paul ultimately says, I understand that I'm acceptable or I'm righteous based on my own efforts. He says the fact that I am uh, born an Israelite uh, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. He's talking about his ethnicity, his race, the stock that he comes from. He's saying these things are a benefit to me. They make me superior or better than the Gentiles. Yet I lay all of that down. I don't consider that the thing I'm banking on anymore. I move it from my asset column to my losses or liabilities column just so I can have Christ. Now, that's important because whether you're black or white, we've got to take whatever... Uh, whoever you are, race, ethnicity, background, all that, not that you no longer remain who you are, but you lay it down in relation to having Christ. He is essential. He is our central identity, our glue, our bond. It's Jesus and Jesus alone. That's why what I'm doing is I'm talking specifically to the church. Now, all that is background to show you that these issues of prejudice, preference, Jewish supremacy, uh, all these ideologies are all present in the church right in the beginning. And they're addressed because God is trying to make uh, his church into one. And that's really when I, where I want to spend my time tonight is walking you through, like I said, this biblical lens through which I see the Bible. And I hope that you'd actually begin to see it the same way that I do. And so we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning. We're going to go to the beginning in Genesis chapter 1, in verse 26, where God decides to make human beings. And so I'm going to read that scripture. Uh, if you don't have time to get there, you can write them down. You can always go back uh, to this video and watch it later as well. Excuse me. All right, so here we go. In Genesis chapter 1, it says, Then God said, let us make mankind 
in our image. We could pause right there. It says, then God said, let us make man in our image. God is speaking. You would think singular God. And you see the plurality uh, in which God exists. Then God said, let us make man in our image. So what we need to understand first is that God, by his nature, is diverse. He exists as three in one. God exists in diversity. And so he wants to make human beings in his image to be like him. So diversity is a part of what it means to be human because we're made in God's image. Now, to be made in God's image means you are a reflection or a representative of God. The reason why God made you and I is so that we could represent him in the world. Uh, when you look throughout the Bible and you see this idea of making an idol, an idol for most kings was a representative. They would build a statue as a representative of themselves so that people could see them and acknowledge their power or authority. And God tells the Israelites they are not allowed to build any idols because they are the physical representation. They are the image of God. And we see it right here in Genesis 1, 26. He says, let us make mankind in our image and our likeness. That was the purpose that God wanted. Uh, he closes with saying, so God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So when God said, let's make man, which is for mankind, in our image, he chose to make a, female, a male and a female. Something about his diversity says it cannot be fully displayed or seen in just one sex. So God makes man and woman to somehow reflect what God is ultimately like. That's the start of the Bible. That's its purpose. Why are we here as humans? Because we're supposed to represent God. Well, in Genesis chapter 3, everything falls apart. Adam and Eve sin. And the relationship between humans and God is broken. And the relationship between humans and humans is broken. What sin does is it breaks the relationship between us and God and us and other humans. That's what sin does at the core. It destroys the relationship. And we're no longer able to fully represent God because sin is now, you know, muddying up the image. It's, it's, it's messing up who we are and what we were created to do. That image is ultimately broken. Well, in Genesis chapter 6, God is grieved that people are so sinful that he decides to actually flood the whole world. But he saves Noah and Noah's wife and then their three sons and their three wives. So just eight people are saved on the ark and a whole bunch of animals. And then in chapter nine of Genesis, God tells them to be fruitful and multiply. And then in chapter 10 of Genesis, we see that Noah's three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth are the three people which all the humans on the world today come from. So I wanna go there and read that passage in Genesis chapter 10. Turn with me or write it down that you might go and look at another time. Because, of course, our time is going to fly tonight, like it always does, but that's all right. We got Genesis chapter 10, verse 1 says, uh, well, actually, I think a better verse would be Genesis chapter 9. Let's go to Genesis chapter 9 first, 
and look at verse 18. Genesis 9:18 tells us, The sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of the Canaanites. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who were scattered over the whole earth. The Bible tells us that no matter who you are or what tribe or nation or country, ethnicity that you come from, ultimately your tribe, your lineage is going to lead back to these three men, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, which are all sons of Noah, which means at the end of the day, all of us are related. And if you don't believe that story, then it starts with Adam and Eve. So humanity is simply interwoven. We're all the human race, one species. We're just humans. But what happens here uh, in 11 is that all the people come from this, uh, these three families. And so it tells us in chapter 10, verse 1, this is the account of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, Noah's sons, who themselves had sons after the flood. And so it starts off by saying the sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan. You have to go and read those. And every single one of those names is basically uh, a location or a geographical area on a map. So if I'm looking here and I see Gomer, that's Germany. Uh, Magog is Russia. Madai is Iran. Javan is Greece. So Japheth's descendants are basically all the European peoples and areas of the world. And we could do the same with Ham. We see he's going to be places like Ethiopia and Egypt and Libya and North Africa. Put all of these regions. All these people come from these descendants. Now, if we turn the page again to chapter 11, what happens in chapter 11 is those people are still unified as one group and they're led by Nimrod. And what they decide to do is to build a tower basically in rebellion against God and God divides their languages. He gives them different languages. And it says that because they can no longer communicate, they scatter. That's exactly what the Bible uh, tells us. And Genesis chapter 11, verse 8. It says, so the Lord scattered them from there over all the earth and they stopped building the city. This is why it is called Babel. Because there the Lord confused the languages of the whole world. From there the Lord scattered them all over the face of the whole earth. So, so far, God makes people in his image to represent them in the world. They sin and that muddies up the whole image bearing component. Genesis 6, he's grieved he's ever made the world. He floods everything. He saves Noah and his family. They get off the boat and those people are the ones who ultimately produce all the people of the world. But before they scatter, God changes their language because they're being rebellious. And that's what causes people to disperse all over from Germany to Russia to Ethiopia to Egypt, all over the world as a result of what we've got here in Genesis 11. That's the beginning of our humanity that we know. Well, in Genesis chapter 12, God decides to call Abraham. His name was Abram at the time. We already know that. And what God does is says, I'm going to use you and your family line to bring about a seed that will be, you know, the savior of the world. Genesis 3.15, God promises that the woman would have a seed who would deliver us. And so this promise to Abraham that he's going to be the line where his descendants are the people who become a blessing to 
all the other nations. All those nations that were scattered, the, somebody in Abraham's line is going to be a blessing to every other nation on the planet. And then we follow Abraham's story, and we see that Abraham has Isaac, and well, of course he doesn't have him, Isaac, and then Jacob. And Jacob, in Genesis chapter 32, wrestles with God, and ultimately his name changes from Jacob to Israel. And when his name changes to Israel, he has 12 sons, and they become the 12 tribes of Israel, and they make up the nation of Israel. Ultimately, uh, they go into slavery in Egypt for 400 years, and the book of uh, uh, Exodus tracks that story. In Exodus chapters 1 through 18, is all about God raising up Moses, sending him in the desert, preparing him plagues and delivering his people versus chapters 1 through 18. By chapter 19, they come out, they're at the base of the mountain of Mount Sinai, and God makes this covenant with them. And that's what I want us to see. Let's see if I put it on here. I sure did. Exodus 19 verses 5 through 6 tells us, God makes Israel, it says, oh, I'm sorry. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, all those people we just talked about, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, talking about all those people, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. He says, Moses, go tell them, I want to use them as my representative because a priest has a role of representing God to the nations. And God says, all the nations are scattered, but I'm going to choose one family, the nation of Israel, Jacob's descendants, and make you priests. You're going to live in a way following my rules and laws and decrees. You're going to live for me and the world's going to see me through you. Remember the story of Adam when God made him? Him and Eve were supposed to live in a way that people would see God through the way they lived. And because they sinned, nobody can do it. But God picked up with this nation and says, now I'll use you to be a light to the world, to be salt and light to the world. You've probably heard that before. And that's what the children of Israel are supposed to do. Well, when you read the story of the Old Testament, you see they fail miserably. They've got a couple of bright spots or people here and there, but overall, they don't accomplish the purpose of reflecting God to the world. They become about themselves. They start getting influenced by the cultures around them. They do child sacrifice, idol worship, fight one another, get consumed with their possessions. I mean, they're sleeping around. It just gets crazy. And every time God keeps coming with prophets, to not only judge the people who are living that way, but their leaders who are allowing them, who are leading them in destruction. And then there's just the prophet prophecy that there will be one, a Messiah, who will fulfill everything that Israel was supposed to do. And that's the Old Testament. When we get to the New Testament, we discover who the seed of the woman is. We discover who the seed of Abraham is. We discover who the Messiah is. We find that out in Jesus, that he is the one who's coming to fulfill what Adam couldn't do. He is the last Adam. He is the one who comes to fully image God to the world and to destroy Satan, death, and sin so that we can now have a relationship back with God again. That's what Jesus comes to do, and it shows us that in like John chapter 1. Let's read that. No, it's a lot of information, but if you don't know it, 
You don't know the role you play. You don't know where you fit. We need to rethink church. We need to see the Bible through a new lens. We need a reformation of what it means to be Christian so that we can actually do what God has called us to do. And I don't have all the answers, but I think this is a huge part of what God is up to in the world. And so in John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then in verse 14, it says, And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. I think that's significant, that basically God is revealed to us in Jesus. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. And we've seen his glory. We got to see God, the image of God, in the person of Jesus. And it says he was full of grace and truth. So Jesus wasn't just preaching grace. I I'm getting messages from people who... A small amount of people compared to those who are learning and enjoying what we're doing. But some people who only want me to pre preach grace and they don't want truth because truth is hard and it's uncomfortable. But so is the gospel. And if you're saved, you've had to acknowledge that I'm a sinner and broken and wicked. It's offensive to tell somebody the gospel that you don't measure up. You're not good enough. You need a savior. That's why the world doesn't really want the gospel because they don't want to embrace or acknowledge that. And the Bible is a book that constantly not just encourages and equips and builds us, but also rebukes us and corrects us and straightens us out when we are off. And so grace and truth, we can't compromise either one for the other. And it says that Jesus was full of them both and he balanced them 100% equally in the same way that he's fully God, fully man. Okay, now John 14, verse 9, uh, Jesus answered his disciples and said, Don't you know me, Philip? Even after I have been with you so long, he says, uh, Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Jesus says, I am the representative. If you have seen me, you've seen the Father. Why? Because God's original purpose with Adam and Eve was that they would reflect God and Israel failed to do that. And Jesus is the first one to fulfill God's original purpose. That's why he needed a body so that he can fully image God as a human, but also so that he could die for our sins, paying the penalty to restore us. And that's why Jesus comes to the earth to fulfill the purposes that Adam and Eve basically ruined. And when you read through Romans, it's basically saying, here's what Adam did wrong. Here's how Jesus fixed it. Everybody connected to Adam, you'll die. Everybody connected to Christ, you'll live. And they, and they just keep going back because not only Adam, but every person after Adam didn't get it right. Jesus is the last Adam. He's the one to fully fulfill what God originally intended in the beginning. He is that image. It tells us again in first or in Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says, The Son is the image of the invisible God. Not the S-U-N, the S-O-N. The Son, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. If I want to see what God is like, I can look to Jesus. He is the image, which is what God created human beings to be, the image of God. 
First Colossians 1, 19 through 20 says, Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in the heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Jesus is the visible image of the invisible God, which is what humans were supposed to be. Now, this is what Jesus comes to accomplish. The spirit is fully in Jesus. He reflects God to the world, accomplishing what Adam and Eve were supposed to do. But sin has kept us from God. So he dies to do what? To pay the penalty. And he rises again on the third day through the power of the spirit to conquer death and sin and, and the devil. And then he says, I'm now going to give you the spirit that's in me that allowed me to fully image God and be everything I was supposed to be. I'm going to give it to you. And actually, he says, if I do not go back to heaven, then I can't give you the spirit. And there will just be one image of God on the earth in Jesus. But the purpose was that humans would reflect God all over the world. So he says, I have to go back to heaven. I'll pour out my spirit. And then you guys can do what you were supposed to do originally. And we see that in the book of John 16. I want to read that for you. John 16, verse 17 tells us, and this is Jesus speaking. He says, let me let you get there. John 16, verse 17. He says, but very truly, I tell you it for your good that I am going away. He says, it's for your good that I'm going away. Unless I go away, the advocate will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. So Jesus says, it's for your benefit that I go back to heaven because then I can pour out my spirit on all of you guys and you can be the image bearers like me because that's what you've been put here to do. And I've just come to fix it, to restore, to redeem, to reconcile. All of those words have re at the beginning, at the beginning re, which is a prefix. Just like if I said I have to reheat my food, that means it was already hot at one point, and now I'm reheating it again. And that's what we get with redeem and restore and reconcile. Jesus is taking us back to a place with God that we already had. We were already supposed to do these things. He's coming to fix what was taken, what was broken, what was stolen. He's redoing all of these things. Once he accomplishes the purpose, he says, I have to leave now. Then I'll give you my spirit to do what you were created to do here originally. And not only does he give us the spirit, then he tells us this very key uh, statement in 2 uh, Corinthians chapter 5. Let's go there. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. I hope this is making sense to you. It's very powerful. Second uh, Corinthians chapter five, verse 14, 2 Corinthians five fourteen, says for Christ's love, com love compels us because we are convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. How does that happen? Because the unity, the oneness that we have, if we have embraced Christ and he died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. 
So from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view, meaning race, income, education, status. We see every single human as an image bearer. Every person is an image bearer. They all represent God. If they hate God or the most anti-God person on the planet, they are still his image bearer. And Christians who have died with Christ and been born again, they don't look, see, regard other people from a worldly perspective. We're not looking at these worldly things to define or des describe people. We see them through the lens of God and they are image bearers. It's as though we once regarded Christ in this way. They didn't understand who he fully was. They missed him. They saw him from a human standpoint, even to the point where Jesus had to tell Peter, get behind me, Satan. You're seeing things from merely a human standpoint. And he says, though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. We're not talking about heaven. We're not talking about some future destination. Anybody in Christ, the new creation has already come. The old has gone and the new is here. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. So Jesus came full of the spirit to represent God, to die for our sins, to restore what we were put here to do. And then he goes to heaven, pours out his spirit back on us and says, now you must do what you were put here to do. And I just showed you what that is, to image God and for you. I reconciled you. Now you go reconcile other people. Which people? All of them, because you don't regard people from a worldly standpoint. You see them in the way that I see them. I came to die for all people. So you go serve, love, reconcile all people. You see them differently because you've been born again. You are now new. You're a new creation. You're not the old way. That's why we baptize people saying that they died to themselves, resurrected now to live for the glory of God through the power of the Holy Spirit. This is Christianity 101. He tells them, uh, we have this ministry now of reconciliation. It says that God, let me see this. All this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. That's, that's, I mean, all this stuff, I have to come back to all these passages later because they're so powerful. And I see and hear so many Christians constantly pointing out people's sins, not understanding that God was in Christ, reconciling people to himself, not counting people's sins against him. We have that same heart and attitude and mentality. Uh, it says, and he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. He's, he's given that to us. Jesus isn't here anymore. It's on his church who are filled with his spirit to be the ones who are reconciling people. He says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Now, I could spend time. I have to come back to that later. But that's a, that's a government term. Now you're talking about you're getting into politics as an ambassador. It says, uh, but basically you're from another country and you've been sent to, to a foreign land to represent your kingdom, your nation, your country. That's what an ambassador is. Jesus says, we're ambassadors. This is not our home. He sent us here. Now we're getting into the idea of, well, what is the church and looking at ecclesia and this assembly? I'll get into that later on. But 
He says we're his ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. God makes his appeal to the world through his church. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God gave us the ministry of reconciliation and reconciliation is never just about people returning to God alone. It's always about the relationship between humans and God being restored and humans and other humans because that what was broken in the garden. In Genesis chapter three, when they sinned, they hid from one another and then they hid from God. Jesus came to restore and redeem the hiding from one another and the hiding from God. So the first four commandments and the 10 commandments are about people and God and the last six are about people and people. That's just the way reconciliation works. It's never you as an individual with just you and your God. It's always this way too, because you can't tell God that you love him and you don't want to love his children. Now think about that. If you want to marry a person or be with somebody, but they don't love or like your children, well, you've got an issue. So first John tells us, God says, you can't say you love me whom you have not seen if you don't love your brother who you see every day because they're made in my image. They are my image. They, they reflect me. You can't say you love me and you don't love them. He challenges. He actually says, you're a liar. You're not telling the truth. And the love that I have for them and I gave you, you, you didn't get that. You're self-deceived. And even Jesus picks up on this. You guys know this in Matthew 22. They, they try to trap Jesus and says, what's the greatest commandment? And he says, love God and love your neighbor. He doesn't just say love God because we show that by loving our neighbor. What was broken, he redeems. We prove it, not just with me and God in my quiet time, but how I interact with my neighbor. And this is a powerful passage in Luke chapter 10, as our time is ticking. Luke chapter 10 says, uh, after Jesus basically gave that answer, it says, but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest, notice who it is, a priest, a man of God, a representative. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So, to a Levite, another godly man representative, when he came to the place and saw him pass by on the other side. Now, these are godly people who are responsible for representing God to the world. They're Levites and priests. They know the Bible, and yet they do nothing. And I'm going to come back to this, I don't know, in the next couple of days and talk about how, as biblical leaders, we cannot do nothing. The priest sees the man and walks on by and does nothing. He knows the scripture. He, he lives truth. He's a godly person. Why didn't he do anything? There's a reason why Jesus told the story this way. Anyway, uh, he says, but a Samaritan, a person who they would, Jews and Samaritans don't get along. Uh, they don't do life together. They haven't, they don't, they don't, they just don't get along. And Jesus says, but a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him, 
And look what he did. He bandaged his wounds. He poured oil. First, he went to him. Then he bandaged his wounds. Then he poured oil and wine. Then he put the man, you know, on his donkey. Uh, he brought him to a hotel and took care of him. The next day, he paid two denarii to the innkeeper to look after him. And he said, when I return, I will reimburse you any extra expense you may have. So I'll take out. Look how he's stepping up. And Jesus basically says, who do you think is his neighbor? And they said, of course, the Samaritan. And Jesus tells a story about people who don't traditionally get along, but how they 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 come together or one loves the other person, even though they, they didn't have anything in common. And historically, they did not get along. Remember, this is in response to love God and love your neighbor as the greatest commandment. And then the question is, who is my neighbor? And this is the story that's told. There is no excuse. We don't have any we're told to love our enemies. So even if you see a person as the worst, I'm not going to black and white people. No matter who the person is, God tells us to love them. And we don't have that power on our own. We need the Holy Spirit. We need to have received that love from God if we ever intend to give it. All of what we do as believers is in response to who Jesus is and what he's done to us. And this leads me with a little bit of time we have left to uh, John chapter 17. John chapter 17 is so essential to me, to everything I'm talking about, because it's Jesus's high priestly prayer. It's his, his grandioso, his, his big time. What's the thing that Jesus wanted? We, we talk about the Lord's prayer, but that was Jesus teaching his disciples how to pray. It wasn't his prayer. This is the Lord's prayer, Jesus's prayer, before he goes back to heaven. This is what he is asking God. Now, you got to go and read all of John 17 to get the full context. I'm just going to give you a few pieces here and there. John 17, 11 is where I'll start and then I'll skip around. But in 17, 11, it says, I will remain in the world no longer. This is Jesus talking before he goes back. He says, but they are still in the world, talking about his disciples. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. So that is a purpose statement. Jesus says, here's what I want you to do, God. I'm asking you, I'm praying that you protect them and you keep them so they could be one. And then in verse 15, I'm jumping ahead. He says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world. And keep us isolated or secluded from the real world and its issues, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of it. Remember, we're ambassadors. This is not our home. He says, sanctify them by the truth. The truth is what sanctifies us, sets us apart, makes us God people, God's people. That's why we need the Bible and it's truth. It says, your word is truth. He tells us right there. As you sent me into the world, the same purpose, he says, I have sent them into the world. The things that God sent Jesus to do, Jesus is sending us to do. He says again, as you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them, I sanctify myself that they too may be truly sanctified. He says, my prayer is not for them alone. Meaning the disciples that are right in front of him. He says, I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So when they go out and preach, the gospel is shared. Whoever else comes to believe, I'm praying for them as well. He says that all of them may be one. What does Jesus wish for? 
What is he praying about? What does he desire? That his followers would be one. That's what he wants. For his church to be sanctified by his word, which is truth, and that we could be one. He says, Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that, here's the purpose, the world may believe that you have sent me. When is the world going to believe that God sent Jesus? When they see his church operate as one. As long as we are segregated and divided as a church, full of black church over here, white, Hispanic, Asian, the world will not see or believe that Jesus sent him until we are one. Doesn't mean every single church is equally diverse. What it does mean is that we operate as one. That our cultural preferences, music, worship, style, those are not the primary things. We're willing to lay that down and embrace this idea of being one. Now, the interesting thing about what he says here, uh, let me finish reading it. He says, they believe you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, uh, that they may be one as we are one. That's so powerful. I and them and you and me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Complete unity. There's a difference between going to a Laker game, a Dodger game, and seeing all kinds of people, rich, poor, black, white, male, female. No, they're not in unity. They're not in agreement as one. For the, they, they diverse and go their own ways after the game. And it's not just for the sake of diversity. Uh, because Pastor Doug Logan, I think it is, says, hell is going to be diverse. There will be all types of people in hell too. We're not just being diverse. He says complete unity, that we're fully in agreement as one body. And this image that he's painting for oneness is the same, he says, as me and the Father are one. The Godhead, the Trinity, how they're one. Or a husband and a wife, how they're one. It says a man leaves his father and mother and cleaves to his wife and the two become one flesh. That word one there, whether you look at Genesis 2.24 or Ephesians 5, like the idea is oneness. They don't see themselves as, well, what I'm doing or what I'm about, this individualistic Americanized idea. Yeah, you have a personal relationship with Jesus, but you've entered into a corporate body where you are a part of the body, the bride, the army. And you play a role and together we image God to the world. And when we're one, they believe that God sent him. Oneness does not mean you lay, we're sameness. It's just unity and on one accord. And we only see that in the Godhead, the Trinity, and in marriage, in the church. It says that Jesus and the church are one and that we as believers somehow we're one. Those are the, these images that all are reflecting God. To the world. We're running out of time, so I'm going to go to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, um, verses 11 through 22. This is how the apostles understood what Jesus was praying for and what he taught them. This is what they went out and instituted. Paul in Ephesians 2 11 says, Therefore, remember 
that formerly you who were Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who called themselves a circumcision. So basically Gentiles and Jews, they were separated. And he says, remember that at that time you were separated from Christ. Gentiles had no relationship, but they didn't know about God. And he says, you were excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants for, of the promise without hope and without God in this world. They were just pagans. They didn't necessarily know about God and the promise of a Messiah and the anointed one. They didn't know these things, but the Jews did. That's what made them feel superior or supreme or better than the Gentiles. And look at what Paul tells us. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace. Jesus is our peace. Why? Because there's no way these people who have been historically divided could ever come together. What would make them come together? Oh, he says, Jesus is our peace. He's the thing that gives us peace so that we can come back together. He says, who has made the two groups one? There it is again. Jesus has made the, the two groups one. Historically, they don't get along. They don't like each other. They got different ways of living. They eat pork. They don't. They worship this way. They don't. All different. Now, in the church, Jesus is making these two distinct ethnically, socially, culturally, you name it, different groups. He's making them one. That's where the church is. Where he takes these different people, different backgrounds, different beliefs, different everything. His blood gives them peace for them to become one, just as what Jesus prayed for in John 17. He says the two groups to be one and has destroyed the barrier. There's a barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. There's something inside of us that builds a wall which prevents us from actually being one. But it, the Bible is telling us Jesus has destroyed that wall of hostility. The dividing wall of hostility by setting aside in his flesh the law with his commands and regulations. His purpose was, to, why did Jesus do that? His purpose is telling us right here, family. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two. Jesus is trying to create a new humanity. A new humanity? What type of human are you? A new one, a different one. This is a, a, a novel situation, unlike the world has ever seen. When you go look up the word, you'll see what he's talking about. The, we've never seen this before. Jesus is creating something novel that's never been seen. He's making a new type of humanity where people from all types of races and backgrounds and, you know, incomes, education could come together to be one. That's what I'm reading. He's making a new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross. By which he, by which he put to death their hostility. Jesus is not. For black and white people, he's not denying that there's hostility, that there's a wall, that there's barriers, that there's history, that there's culture. That there... He's not overlooking it like many of us want to do. 
He's saying, no, I died to destroy it, to give you peace, that you wouldn't be embracing your race or ethnicity or nationality or country, but you would understand you are a new humanity. And I am sending you to America as an ambassador to represent heaven. That's what the world needs to see. I'll spend more time in the next couple of days, hopefully drawing this out for us because I'm spending too much time here. He says, he came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, which Jesus Christ himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together uh, and rises to become a holy temple of the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. When we come together as one, folks, Hispanic, Asian, black, white, we come one as Jesus' church. The spirit dwells there. We become the temple on earth. Place for all the people who are lost and don't know God can come and find him. And not just that they come in our churches, but we disperse as tabernacles, as temples, as the body of Christ, and we take the spirit of God to them wherever they are. Understand then that when we read this idea of uh, new humanity, did you notice it's not individual? He's talking about the groups. It's corporate. It's not you as an individual. He's making a corporate oneness through the body. I'll try to talk about that later on. I'm pressed for time. So in Galatians chapter 3, Verses 28 through 29, it says, There is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, the heirs according to the promise. First Peter chapter 2, verse 9, you'll remember this from Exodus chapter 19, says, now he's talking to the church. He says the same thing that he said to Israel when he brought them out of slavery. He says, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. That you may declare the praises of him who called you out of the darkness into his marvelous light. God chose Israel and in Exodus 19, he says, I want you to be my holy nation, a kingdom of priests to represent me to the world. And they failed and Jesus come and fulfilled it. And Jesus gave us the spirit. And then God says, hey, church, I want you to be my holy nation, my special possession, kingdom of priests to reflect me to the world. And if you look at what we're doing, we're failing, church. We are failing. We can't even agree if we should care about somebody losing their life or not. Like, or is it more important to be concerned about looting? And people have the audacity to ask me, well, what about the looting? It's wrong. It's clear. It's all wrong. But how does that make you not care about not just George Floyd, but any person who's not just murdered, but who's going to go to hell, who's going to die and not know Jesus? Like we have a purpose. We've been called for a purpose bigger than ourselves. We're a new humanity. We're God's priest. We're his temple. We're supposed to be the light to expose the darkness. 
that the world could see and to be salt, which is a purifier, a retardant to keep all this decay away. But Jesus says, if salt loses its saltiness, it's not good for anything but to be trampled underfoot. I'm afraid, like Martin Luther King said 55 years ago, that if the church doesn't return to its original authenticity and, and look like what the church did in the beginning, then we'll just become an irrelevant social club that has no power. We are drifting in that lane. If we don't begin to hear and read this stuff, Matthew 28, verses 19 to 20, you know, it says, go and make disciples of all nations. Not your kind, your tribe, your people, all nations. Acts chapter 1, verse 8 says, but when the Holy Spirit comes, you will receive power and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria to the ends of the earth. You might start in your neighborhood or your community or where you are, but we want to reach people who are very different than us and not like us. That's what the gospel does. And when the Holy Spirit comes, that's what we become about. And we know that if we live that out, then in Revelation 7, it tells us that in heaven we will see people from every tribe, language, nation, and tongue worshiping. They're not going to lose their ethnicity or their race or their culture or their identity. No, they're going to all be there worshiping God the way he made them in diversity on purpose to reflect his glory and how diverse he actually is. But Ephesians 6 and 12 tells us that we are not fighting against flesh and blood. We've got a spiritual enemy who is at work and has done an incredible job to keep the church divided. When Jesus is praying, Lord, make them one, we are content with having a court for the Gentiles, separate from the temple, a black church over here and a white and this and that and that. And we're never going to let people see Jesus. John 14 says, They'll know you're my disciples by the love you have for one another. 17 says, they'll know God sent me when they see how you behave as one. Why is the world the way it is? It's on us. Look at the Old Testament. Maybe I'll walk us through that. God always comes to the leaders. Uh, Dr. Tony Evans says that God is not going to skip the church house to fix the White House. No, his stuff always starts with us. We're the people. We're the, the world and the White House and politics. They're not God's representative. We are. And unfortunately, um, we're fighting a spiritual enemy who's doing a good job. And Matthew 12 tells us that a house divided cannot stand. That is where, if, how can two walk together unless they agree? Right. Matthew 12 says, if we're divided and we're fighting against the people in our own household, that household's going to crumble. If we can't figure out who to love, who to fight for, who to stand up for, who to speak for, what the church is supposed to do. And the reason why it's such a challenge for us is because it has been the, the roots have been laid in a white supremacist ideology that makes people today challenge the systems by what I think is pretty clear in the scripture. So I'm going to be walking us through this, saying a lot of stuff that you've maybe never heard or thought about. And it's just, I'm trying to be gracious because I think I have to do that, but I'm going to tell the truth. It's not to demonize any group of people because there's not like some all white people, or I want to say inherently bad because, but we are white people, black people, they're all sin is real. 
but in our churches, we've got to do better if we're going to fulfill what Jesus prayed for, what he died for, what he came to do, that we might image him as one in the world. That's what it means to be the church. I wanted to lay out this huge picture. Just to recap, God makes people in his image to be like him. People sin and they're not doing it anymore. God chooses Abraham and his family, the nation of Israel, to reflect him, and they fail. So God sends Jesus, and Jesus fulfills it through the power of the Spirit. He destroys sin and death and Satan, and then he pours out the Spirit on people that they would come together as one in the same way that he and the Father is one and be his image bearer and reflect him in the world. That's what it means to be a part of the church. Simple as that, except to do that requires hope, a lot of spirit, a lot of prayer, a lot of humility, a lot of forgiveness, a lot of overlooking forgiveness, hurt, pain, and all the other stuff because we're still figuring it out in this world. But we've at least got to be striving for what the Bible, I think, paints pretty clearly for us. And if we're not, call it what you want. Just don't call it Christian. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word, which Jesus says is truth. And I thank you that your spirit reveals truth to us and that you've chosen to reveal uh, this bigger picture to me. And Lord, I know that there's other brothers and sisters all over the world who you revealed this to and even more. And I pray that you, you would unite us, that we could accomplish what you sent us here to do. And I know that we're being called to be your image bearers, and to reconcile people back to you and to one another. So I pray against the devil and his, his strategies and systems and the way that he has hijacked uh, your truth and told lies. We rebuke everything that he's done right now in the name of Jesus, how he has fortified people's thoughts and thinking and systems to keep us divided. And we ask that your spirit would set us free, would break chains, would break strongholds, and, and let us loose to be the church you sent your son to create. But God, we desperately need your help. So we pray that you do a great work. Use this time for your glory and our good. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, God bless you guys. Thanks for hanging out with me tonight. And uh, I hope that this is helping you in your journey. Uh, I'm going to be on tomorrow night. Uh, tomorrow's Tuesday. And then I'm going to take off the rest of the week. My birthday is on Wednesday. I'll be celebrating uh, my birthday Wednesday and Thursday will be off. And then Sunday is my first Father's Day. So I'm taking the whole week off because I need it. I definitely need it. And I will recap, I mean, pick back up on Monday. But we will be back tomorrow. I'm just giving you a heads up. We'll be back tomorrow uh, at 6, and then we'll have a little bit of time off. Okay, love you guys, and uh, I will see you tomorrow night. Have a good one.